Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 4, where we are going to be looking together this morning at verses 35 through 41. Mark, chapter 4, 35 through 41, and you can find that passage on page 984 in your pew Bibles. Well, one of the things that I have pointed out to you continually in our look together at this accounting of the gospel here in Mark is that there really is a very real sense of urgency here. And I've told you why. Mark is desperate to get before you the Lord Jesus Christ. That urgency sort of sets this account apart from the other gospel accounts. However, there's something here in Mark that I would argue is common in all of the gospels. There is more food for thought here in the harmony of the gospels than we could ever possibly exhaust in a lifetime. So perhaps a good place for us to start would be to just consider some of those events that surrounded the glory and the story of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we do that, one of the things that we find is there is one consistent common thread in all of the scriptures surrounding those narratives speaking to that event, and it is the element of faith, God-given faith, and how it and it alone calms and even chases away all of our fears, even those which appear to be so justifiable in the moment, those difficult moments when we are living through them. We see it even beginning in the prophecies of his birth. We hear the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, pointing to the promise of Almighty God as he reminds the people of God that though certainly dark and tumultuous times are even now enveloping them as a nation. Nevertheless, salvation is coming. Joy and gladness are coming in the light of those days will chase away their mourning and their dread. The joy and gladness are not yet visible. Yet we see faith lay hold, lays hold of what is invisible. Faith sees what is not yet seen. Only faith can embrace the hope in Isaiah's prophecy. When everything that is tangible is screaming nothing less than death and annihilation for the people of God. You see it again in that angelic visitation of the angel Gabriel with Mary. You remember, Mary was told, Mary, do not be afraid. Why? Because the favor of Almighty God is upon you. She was going to be the chosen vessel of Almighty God to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. And again, God graciously gave to Mary faith. Faith by which she took him at his word. She trusted him. And her fears, desperate though they were, were alleviated. 
Though her flesh undoubtedly was raging against this message being the kind of news that could or ever would bring anyone peace. You think of the shepherds. Those who were given a measure of faith which brought about their obedience to the word of God even amid their trembling in the presence of the holy. Though they knew they had every reason to fear this heavenly visitation, by faith they took God at his word and they made haste to Bethlehem. And it continues after. You think of, you think of wise old long-suffering Simeon waiting patiently in the temple in order to behold the consolation of Israel. He knew he would not die until he had beheld with his physical sight the glory of God's Messiah face to face. Faith overruled the cries of his flesh and faith brought Simeon to that peaceful place of trusting and waiting on God rather than doubting and fretting. Faith brings peace, and it belongs to the true children of God. Fear gives birth to anxiety and worry and more and more restlessness. And beloved, I want to tell you this morning that fear is intricately tied to this fallen world. So I thought perhaps we might do well to sort of remind ourselves here at the end of chapter 4, not only who Jesus Christ is, I won't, I won't sway from that. Jesus Christ is front and center in this entire narrative of, of the gospel according to Mark. But also to remind us of what faith is and to look once again at what it is that faith does. How do we recognize true faith? Faith recognizes the all-encompassing authority of Almighty God and responds to it with far more than just lip service. Rather, faith believes and trusts that Almighty God will do all that He's promised to do in His Word. It's more than just an intellectual assent. It is a hearty trust, to put it in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism in question 21. One we've looked at many times. True faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a hearty trust, which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Faith is much more than just a knowledge of God and his word. That's the beginning. It's a certain knowledge. But true faith comes from the supernatural opening up of the eyes by the spirit of God through the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gift of God. And through it, We come to see and to know exactly what is ours if we truly belong to Jesus. We see by faith that because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we indeed have the forgiveness of sins and every blessing 
of eternal salvation. Because of Christ and through Christ, we have been the declared heirs of every heavenly blessing. We just considered some examples of faith that brought about immediate and even dramatic results. The danger in doing this kind of thing is that it's enticing anyone to think that what they need to do is simply emulate the faithfulness of the people involved in these narratives and call that Christianity. So if I just accept whatever comes my way, like Mary, or like the shepherds, or like Simeon, then Almighty God will, in fact, Almighty God must bless me for that action of my faith. So what I need to have is simply a stiff upper lip, and then I can probably get through. If we're not careful, we place the emphasis not on the faith or the singular object of the faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, we place it on the cracked pot, the one who is simply shining forth the light of Jesus Christ by faith. This morning, we're going to look at another example of faith. And it is an example that I am absolutely certain is one that we can all relate to in our own experience. So today I want for us to look at faith from a bit of a different perspective as we look through the eyes of these disciples sailing in the midst of a massive storm on the Sea of Galilee. These men who, though they have acknowledged that Jesus is certainly something very special to them with far more than just lip service, yet we still find them struggling to come to grips fully with the one in whose service they have placed themselves. They are in effect at this point in their lives somewhere between that sure knowledge of God and His Word and that hearty trust that is so wonderfully described for us in the Catechism. There is good reason to believe that these men are far past the point of simply being intrigued with Jesus. And yet we see very clearly that they still do not fully understand who it is that they are daily ministering alongside of. Though they are starting to see, they're beginning to have things revealed to them, they still only see dimly. The passage before us is one that should cause us to bring to mind, to even think deeply about the effect that sin has upon our ability to perceive things as they truly are. And yet, beloved, I tell you that it is also a passage that should absolutely fill the children of God with hope this morning and fill us with the blessed assurance that we need to be bold and to be filled with a manifested love towards God and our neighbors. It's my desire to show you that hope as we look at this Wonderful passage here in Mark's Gospel, and I want to point out to you this morning three comforts or three sources of hope for us that I think we learn here about the person of Jesus Christ, as well as about those whom he has called to be his own, even in a world that is utterly and completely fallen. So will you please look with me now at the Word of God and follow along as I read Mark chapter 4, again, I will pick up with verse 35 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 41. 
On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again for the opportunity that we have to sit before your word this morning. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many, many things that distract us in this life that we would give our undivided attention to your word and hearing your word through the eyes and seeing your word through the eyes of faith, that we would be transformed to live more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have before us not only a well-known passage, but what I would say is really an amazing passage of sacred scripture And I say that for several reasons. One is that it is full, like so much of Mark, of these wonderful contrasts that we've been seeing. They're all very telling for us as we consider the perfect person of the Lord Jesus Christ amid a fallen and imperfect world. We see things here contrasted like the wearied, sleeping Jesus who sleeps peacefully during this violent storm on the sea, contrasted with the majesty of the divine Christ, who upon waking simply speaks but a word to the violent elements of this world, and they immediately obey his divine command and cease altogether from their chaos. We see these weak, fallen disciples who though they've already witnessed mighty works done by the hands of Jesus and they have listened intently to his teaching with an authority that was unrecognizable to them. Upon entering the presence of very real and terrifying danger, they very quickly begin clinging to their fears in an act of faithlessness as they go so far as to even begin to shake their fists at the Son of God. It's full of this kind of contrast, the utter fallenness of this chaotic world held up next to the absolute perfection of Jesus Christ, the God-man, God incarnate. It's also interesting in that this event comes at the close of a day in which Jesus has been teaching these multitudes that are pressing in on him all around him as he so often did in parables. We've been looking at those parables together over the last couple of weeks. 
It was using these stories and examples from life that his audience would relate to in order to convey deep spiritual truths about the kingdom of God exclusively to those who were meant to truly hear it. Here we find the disciples with the words of these parables undoubtedly still ringing in their ears in the very midst of living out a parable of their own. Pointing to what their lives, what our lives for that matter, will be like as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ amid a world fallen in sin. Do you see that here? They are, in a sense, living in the middle of a parable, aren't they? Sailing with the Savior during one of the raging storms of this life, either looking to the storm in fear and becoming angry with Jesus for sleeping through their perilous moment, or possibly understanding that the one who is asleep has absolute, complete authority over all of creation creation which he himself spoke spoke into being with but a word from his mouth and resting in that fact above all else by faith. It brings me to the first comfort that I think we need to see here. And beloved, it, it is this. The followers of Jesus Christ will endure the storms of this fallen world. But we who look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith do not ever have to live in fear of them. Do you believe that? You and I and these disciples are not at all exempt from the trials and tribulations, the sufferings and the afflictions that are the direct result of a world that has fallen because of sin and its curse. We live in a day when even many in the church are teaching That we are never supposed to suffer affliction of any kind and that when we do, it's the result of our own lack of faith in Jesus Christ. If only we could trust God more, he would be obligated to deliver us to a life of ease, a life of blessing. That's certainly not the lesson that is taught here, is it? Or anywhere else in scripture for that matter. Beloved, when we trust God, it does not mean that the afflictions that will arise in our lives will cease as some kind of reward for our exercising faith that God gives. Rather, it teaches that when the Spirit of God opens our eyes to our true condition and to the love of Almighty God given to us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our hearts are transformed. We are made new, and our perspective is forever changed. The things that we fear are forever changed. The suffering so often involved in this life fades into the background as we consider what Jesus Christ has done, how it is that we belong to Him, how He cares for us right now, and what it will be like in glory when the veil of this life and sin is removed. But the suffering that is a part of this life will not cease until that day when Jesus comes again. The world we know is fallen in Adam. Not just us, 
But the creation itself, the creation that we live in, is fallen. The world is fallen, and until Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, we will live with the results of that fall for all of our days toiling under the sun. One gains a very different perspective on suffering and affliction in this life when he views it through the eyes of true biblical faith. It's far more than just a knowledge of God. It's also a hearty trust. You say, well, what does that mean? The horrific diseases, the cancers, the sickness of this world, the pain that we humans cause one another through violence, through wickedly thinking only of ourselves, the natural disasters, the hurricanes and the tsunamis and the earthquakes of this world and the tragedies that they induce are something quite different to the one who sees them as just being more ways that we are removed from this body of death and ushered into the glorious presence of Almighty God. He who is working all things together for the good of those who love him a God of providence. A God who has our lives in his hands. A God who is moving heaven and earth to save his people. It's a matter of faith bringing us trust and patience and a very real hope. Or this world bringing us fear and uneasiness and burden after burden as we cling to this world and its trinkets as if they mattered anything at all. Beloved, ask yourselves, what do the trials of this life build up in you? Faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God or fear? What do you desire to cling to, to hang on to when the storms of this life roll in? And they will. Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychiatry, said that the reason that we even have religion in this world is because of man's fear of nature and his fear of that which he cannot control. Men, in fact, according to Freud, have invented religion to calm their fear of nature. According to Freud, we feel the sense of helplessness under something like the powerful influence of an earthquake or a flood or of some horrible disease. And so we create a God who will have power over the things that actually terrify us. But for the one who possesses true faith in Christ, this theory simply does not hold water. Why? Because when we have truly seen who God is, We are not nearly as terrified of this fallen world around us as we are of the awesome and majestic holiness of God himself. Right? It it, it renders that whole argument pointless. Look at the disciples' reaction to this storm. They were certainly afraid. They were terrified. They were so terrified that they allowed themselves to even become somewhat indignant that Jesus could just lie there sleeping 
while they were only moments away from being in the very grips of death itself. But do you see where the real fear entered this scene? They thought that they were afraid of dying at sea. However, when Jesus stood up in the boat and spoke but a word to the winds of the storm and the waves, the sea and the winds immediately obeyed his voice. And that's when the real fear arrived. They looked at one another and said, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obeys him? That was the real terror struck in the hearts of these men who could not yet fully see that they were in the presence of the incarnate God. The creator, sustainer of the universe. Do you see, beloved? We do not have to fear the things of this life that can separate us from these bodies. But we absolutely fear the one who can throw both body and soul into the fires of hell. Through faith, the gift of God, he mercifully even calms that fear. Do you understand? Faith opens our eyes to the one who loved us enough to come in the humble body of a man and walk among us, even willingly embracing the death of the cross in order to fully satisfy for all of our sins and to fully release us from all of our bondage. The one who will judge us has given us grace even though we are dead in our trespasses and sins, even though we often feel the weight of the storms of this life, and even though we often lash out ourselves. You know what it is to shake your puny fist in God's direction? We become indignant that God would be resting, sleeping in the midst of our trial, even though we are like this, beloved. He gives us more grace. And he shows us not the wrath that we deserve, but such mercy and love that we cannot even begin to wrap our tiny minds around it. Those who have been graciously given faith in Jesus Christ will weather the storms of this life because they know and trust by the grace of God that there is not a single second of this life that remains outside of the sovereign control of the God of the universe. We are in the master's hands, and so too are every single one of our circumstances, our situations. Brothers and sisters, I trust that that fact alone is a tremendous encouragement to us this morning if we fully realize it. The second comfort here for the one who possesses true faith in Jesus Christ is the fact that here, once again, we see that Jesus Christ was unmistakably both fully God and fully man. Do you notice that here? Jesus Christ was the God-man, and we certainly see it here. He was both man and God. His humanity was not swallowed up in his deity, and his deity was not swallowed up in his humanity. Again, the catechism speaks to the theological implications of that truth. 
Jesus had to be fully man. Because only the same human nature that fell had to come and keep the law perfectly in order to make full satisfaction for our sins. And he had to be fully God so that he could endure the wrath of God being poured out upon him as the penalty for that sin and yet somehow remain sinless even amid unspeakable, unthinkable suffering. Only deity could endure that penalty and not sin. Today I want to point out the practical implications of the human nature of Jesus Christ. He was fully man, yet without sin. What does that mean beyond, what does it mean to you and I beyond the theological question of the perfect justice of Almighty God being satisfied, which we've talked about many times? I think we glimpse it here when we tie it together with what we know from Scripture. Jesus knew what it was to be human yet without sin. It means that he felt weariness. He knew physical suffering and pain. He knew what it was like to suffer physically and to become exhausted. He knew physical limitations. Here in the middle of this terrifying storm where the boat is being tossed to and fro by these violent waves, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat and he's so tired that he's not even roused from his sleep. He's feeling the limitations of these bodies that we possess in this fallen world where you and I certainly know what it is to be weary. Don't we? I can tell you after a long week at Synod, <laughs> you know, people say, oh, you got to go to Synod this week. It was like a vacation. Eh, not so much. Right? You, you start working at about 7 o'clock in the morning and if you're fortunate, you're done by 10.30, 11 o'clock at night and you get up and you do it all over again, again and again and again and then you drive a really long time to get back home. After a long week at Synod, we were not able to begin the 11-hour drive home until about 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoon, and we pushed through pretty hard and made it to Defiance around 3.30 in the morning, and I'm still catching up, and I still feel a bit wearied from all of the travel and the work. Weariness, right? We know what it is to push ourselves past our limits. That's what we see here with Jesus. He's weary. He's at the end of a long day where he has been preaching continually to these growing crowds that are pushing in on him. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. And he's not going out into the lake for for a vacation. He's not going out there to rest. They're simply crossing the lake to immediately begin ministering to the people who are already gathering on the other side of the lake. Jesus is exhausted. He's pushing his human body to its limits. And he's feeling the effects of it. Now you might be saying, Steve, that's that's great. It sounds true. How in the world is that an encouragement for me? Because by the grace of God, Jesus knows what it is to be exhausted in his body. Do you understand? 
The author of the letter to the Hebrews put it this way. He says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ who ascended into heaven and who now sits at the right hand of the Father who is even now actively working on our behalf on sanctifying our works interceding with our prayers, actively working for us before the Father. He's doing it all, knowing and understanding and sympathizing with your weaknesses. Do you see the encouragement in that? Your weariness as pilgrims in this life is not at all unfamiliar to your Lord. He has experienced it. Your frustrations with the limitations of your body brought on by infirmity and sickness and old age are not foreign to your advocate in heaven. And it should fill us with hope to know that our God knows our weaknesses, has experienced our weaknesses, and sympathizes with them. He's compassionate. Our suffering is not new under the sun. Our great high priest knows it firsthand. And beloved, it should cause us to rejoice. To know that regardless of the suffering and the affliction that are ours in this life, they're not foreign to the Lord Jesus Christ who came as a man and who can sympathize with our weaknesses. There is tremendous comfort in that. And I hope you see it. And it leads me to my third and final point this morning. The third and final comfort that I want to point out to you in this passage is the incomprehensible patience of the Lord Jesus Christ that we see on display here as he deals with his people whom he very clearly loves. Do you see it? Though the response of his people is not always perfectly faithful, despite our unfaithfulness, he is patient and merciful and kind as we are learning to see things as we ought to see them. He is faithful even when we are faithless. We find these disciples showing Really, a tremendous one of faith here, don't we? These men were well on their way to true faith, faith that in time would bear much fruit in each of their lives. We do not have the time to point out all of the fruit that would become evident in the lives of these men and the tremendous impact their lives would have upon this world. Men like Peter and James and John. These men who left everything to follow Jesus. They were far more than just amused or intrigued with Jesus. They were sacrificing because of him daily. They ministered to and with him daily. They sat patiently at his feet, taking in every word that fell from his lips daily. And yet their reaction to their circumstances could not have been any more faithless, could it? They're not only struck with fear and terror, they go so far as to accuse Jesus of not caring whether they lived or died. Have you ever thought about that? 
Think of the absolute insult of what they're saying. Jesus came, he laid aside the glory that was his with his father, he condescended, he put on a body of flesh specifically so that these men might live. And in the face of their fear, they forgot the miracles that they had witnessed firsthand. They forgot the demons that had been cast out. They forgot the sicknesses that they had seen healed. And they simply did not recall any of those things as they stared into the terrifying face of death. They forgot his teaching. They forgot the parables. They forgot the illumination of the kingdom of God. They forgot and they cried out to Jesus, do something, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus gets up. And he's not indignant. He doesn't start smacking guys around for daring to utter such nonsense against his majesty and his purpose. He does not even try to increase their fear to really show them who it truly was that they were daring to speak against in their pathetic cries of panic and fear. He simply gets up And he rebukes the wind and the sea with more force than he uses to rebuke these men. He says to the wind and the sea, peace be still. And the wind and the sea recognize the voice of the master and immediately cease and desist. But these fallen men who in their flesh are clinging to their fears instead of trusting their master by faith, Jesus looks at them and all of their imperfection. And he says, do you still lack faith? Why are you so afraid? Do you still not know who I am? Not one of them is deposed from his position for his failure. Mark simply tells us these men stood there scratching their heads in fear and wonder. That then they went to the other side of the sea where Jesus and his disciples, men who would be used by God to change the world, continued to minister the gospel in that land. Beloved, do you see the comfort here? Jesus Christ is full of tender mercy for his church, regardless of your messes regardless of the shipwreck that you may have made of this life, he is long-suffering towards those who are his. Those whom he purchased with his precious blood. You understand the implications of that. You say, how does this apply to me? Well, Listen, though you have sat under the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the past 20, 30, 50 years, and just yesterday, amid your own storm, you wagged your tongue and you shook your tiny fist toward God 
And you wondered how he could sleep during your suffering. How he could miss what was going on in your life. Quickly forgetting that he suffered far more than you could ever wrap your finite mind around. Even though we are exactly like this, beloved. He loves us. He is gracious to us. He is merciful. He is patient. He loves you like you are. He died for you like you are. Flawed and damaged and weak. Even though he is perfectly holy and just and powerful and righteous. And you are like you are. His word says that his grace is sufficient for you. Beloved, Jesus will give you everything that's needed. And that means you need not fret or worry or fear. He's patient with you. Despite all you do to try his patience, it doesn't work. And he will remain patient with you until he returns when by the grace of God, you will look to him with the faith that he gives, knowing his word, knowing his promise, trusting him. Seeing him with eyes given to you by the very spirit of God through the gospel. This is the point, beloved. I'm, ask yourself, are you exhausted with your suffering this morning? Are you exhausted with your weakness, your disease, your sickness, your sin? Whatever it is that afflicts you day to day. Are you afraid? The Bible says, look to Jesus Christ in faith and find comfort knowing he will bring you through it all to his glory. You are never left to the uncertainty of chance. The picture here is that you are firmly in the loving hands of the sovereign God of the universe and everything contained within it. You are in the hands of the God of providence. And he is ruling and directing your times and your circumstances. He sympathizes with your weakness and regardless of your countless mistakes. He is patient with those whom he has purchased as his own. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you look to Jesus Christ in faith, you will find comfort during even the most terrifying storm. Because faith looks to Jesus Christ and finds rest in any circumstance. Fear simply clings to this volatile world and gives birth to more and more crippling fear. Which one is exemplified in your life? Will you run to the arms of Jesus? Let's pray.